Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the darkness. And the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, I don't know about you, but I have heard many times in my life that somehow everything that you now see and know was simply by chance. There's a great debate that everything that has now formed came out of nothingness. That there was a big bang explosion in the cosmos. And from there, you and I now know everything that we've come to see and be. All of it evolved out of nothingness, in a sense. And to be honest with you, I have no problem with the theory of a big bang explosion. I have no problem with the thought of DNA code, as long as you know who the coder was. And you know where the big bang explosion happened. It happened in the beginning, when Jesus was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything you and I see and know was made for him and by him. In him was life. He is the light of men. He's overcome the darkness. And when he said, let there be light, there was light. Today we're beginning this series uh, in Hebrews chapter 1. And I want simply to build the case that you and I do not need to believe some of the things that you and I hear in science just as Nelson Gluick and even Sir William Ramsey have suggested, there's never been an archaeological or scientific discovery that has ever undermined a biblical fact. And so even though you and I have struggled comprehending, the Bible clearly shows us who the divine creator is and who God's given the power to. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to answer that question as we begin today. And so I want to welcome you here. I want to say thank you for you being here. We want to welcome everyone on the Edgewood campus. And I just ask that you would pray with me as we just allow God to begin to wrestle with us in our hearts about what we're going to read and study today. So will you pray with me, church? God, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us through your son, and Father, I pray that we would realize just how great he is. And though there are many of us who we struggle to put our belief in you, we struggle to put our belief in Jesus, I pray that we would see that Hebrews 1 gives us the reasons to put our faith in you. Stir our hearts' affections. Speak to us in a mighty way. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. And it simply says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In essence, what it says in verse 1 is that God has spoken many different times and many different ways. Initially, he spoke in creation. He showed his handiwork. We see that Romans chapter 1 says that everything that you and I know about creation speaks of God. That even when you watch the, uh, the, the trees blow, when you see the saplings grow, when you see streams of water flow, that it all speaks to God and his handiwork. But he didn't just stop at creation. He began to speak in many different ways. He spoke in miracles and in dreams. 
Jacob wrestled with God. If you remember this as well, you saw a burning bush as God spoke to Moses. And then he didn't just give signs and miracles, but he gave men, prophets, that would warn the people of God to turn back, heed his instruction. And then in verse 2 says, but he didn't just speak long ago in many different ways. But he says, now he's revealing to us in these last days that he would speak to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him he also created the world. You catch that? Like, that's incredible. In these last days, he has spoken, and the word he spoke, and he has spoken, gives you the idea in the Greek, and the verb form, that it's with final authority, that there is no more speaking. There's no one that can raise up on a day and age like this and say, I have a new, written, and revealed word of God. There's no one who could crop up and say, hey, I am now sent from God. I'm a new prophet. I have much to tell you. And so who does that discount? That discounts all of the the people like um, Confucius. It, It discounts Muhammad. It discounts Joseph Smith. Every revealed prophet that since Jesus would say, I have a new word, a new revelation from God, the writer of Hebrews, although unknown, he says, no, God spoke in many different times in different ways. But now in final authority, with no one else to have a a view of this idea, he says, I have spoken finally with full authority through Jesus the Son. And in him, he also created the world. And see, I don't know about you, but I grew up and I had this mindset that it was God the Father that created everything and that Jesus just had one role and that was simply salvation. And so I believed all my life that I would go to church and believe in a sovereign God who created all things. And then when I finally got to a point where I realized that I was sinful and that I needed heaven because I was scared of hell, I thought, well, maybe I'll put my trust in this guy named Jesus. But the Bible doesn't indicate that Jesus' primary role was simply our salvation. But he was indeed the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. I think Colossians 1 puts it in a way that you and I can understand. In verses 15 through 20, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. So, Brandon, are you saying that he is indeed born, that he was created? No, no, no. What that is, is the idea of a word called prototokos. You'll actually see it here in just a minute. And it means that it was a title and it was a position of authority, not a place in time. So Jesus is not the firstborn of creation in place and time. He has always been. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. See, Jesus is not a created being. If he was a created being, it means he had a birth date and an end date. It means if he was a created being, he would have been born of flesh. And if he was born of flesh, then guess what? We're in trouble because we can't have salvation from someone born of flesh. Why? Because flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so we see in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And because he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, we now can put our trust in the divine Savior, one who has created all things, and he's created all things, and he has no problem, what? Recreating something. One of the greatest miracles that blows my mind is when God, through Jesus in Luke chapter 2, takes water, something that's made physical, and he he changes it into something what? Totally different. How can he do that? Like, that's impossible. Science would say that's not possible. That miracle cannot happen. See, science doesn't have a problem with the lame man who walks. Why? Because they think, well, maybe modern medicine or something like that could suggest such. 
They have no problem with a blind man who one day had a, a major headache and then all of a sudden could see. But what science cannot prove is what? How you take water and turn it into wine. They can prove everything else away. They have theories and they have different ideas, but you cannot prove away water turned into wine. Well, you could say, I don't think that was really in the Word. Why is that so incredible? It's incredible because the firstborn of creation, the one who is birthed through the Spirit, who is divine in all ways, 100% God and 100% man, came to us in humanity for one reason, not to do miracles, not to show us great things from the prophets, but to what? Transform our lives and recreate our hearts. Why? Because they've gone array. They've gone astray. And we see that in Genesis 3, a perfect creation that was good. Day one was good. Day two was good. Day three, four, five, and six were good. And on the seventh, he rested. He goes, all my handiwork is good. And it became bad when we fell. And he says, but I have, what? A divine plan, and his name is Jesus, the creator of all things, the firstborn of creation. Colossians verse 116 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Do you see that? All things hold together. The struggle that you have right now is not too big for a God who holds all things together. What you're dealing with, he understands. You and I need to know the power that Jesus has. He's not simply this guy who died on the cross. No, he is a divine creator. He is a divine recreator. He is a healer. He's a life sustainer. He is God in the flesh. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile all things. Reconcile, bring things that were broken back into right relationship, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Can I get an amen right there? Like, I think we could just end the whole message right there. Jesus, life sustainer, creator of all things, desires a relationship with you and me to take what's broken and to breathe new life into it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old, what, has gone and the new has come. And verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. He's the radiance. He is, he is the light. And the darkness has not overcome it. Do you understand? The enemy has not prevailed. He has not won. We live in a day and age where the world is dark. And we oftentimes wonder when it will end. It, how, we will not end until the final days. But even though it is not what? Ending yet, it has already been triumphed over. And so we shall not fear. Why? Because the Lord has already made himself known. He's the radiance, the glory of God, the exact imprint. The word imprint there is the idea of an etching or a stamp or a brand that you would put on an animal. He says, to look at Jesus is to look at God. Thomas says, Jesus, how in the world do we know the place that you're going? How, how do we know? And Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Thomas, why are you asking such things? He says, if you believe that you've seen the Father, he said, you've seen him through me. I and the Father are one. He says the same thing in John chapter 10, 
28, 29, he says to see me is to see the Father. Jesus makes this reference over and over and over. Why? Because he is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. In making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is, get this, the radiance of God. To look at Jesus is to see the Father. And so if you want to see how powerful God is, he says, just look at who my son is. See, for long times, God spoke through what? The prophets. He spoke through dreams and visions, burning bushes. And can you imagine being Moses who even received the law, another way that God spoke, and yet he never could see him face to face. He could never touch God, but he saw him in various ways. He spoke about um, who he was through prophets, but men could never put a tangible idea, a grip on who God was. We could only know about him. We could only have perceptions of him. They could wrestle with him, but they couldn't know him. And then all at once, Jesus enters the world, becomes the divine God-man, created to save us, purify from us from our sins, and he's the exact imprint, the etching of God. Now get this. But he came in John 1 to dwell among his people. The word dwell means skene. He tabernacled among us. Just as God tabernacled among the people in the Old Testament in a tent, he's now tabernacling among the people again in a tent. What? With skin on. And so here it is. Jesus is in a tent tabernacling among the people, and he's literally saying, you want to see God? Guys, you've longed to see him. Do you remember the days of Moses saying, I want to see the face of God? And God says, oh no, you can't see my face. And only covers him in the cleft of the rock to pass by where he can see his back. And Jesus is saying, and the author of Hebrews is simply saying, look, you want to see God, here I am. This is the Father. This is who God is. I am him. Now that outraged the Jews, didn't it? They couldn't understand how a divine being, a God, would manifest himself in man. Why? Because they view man as sinful. And they were right in that. But Jesus wasn't simply man. He was God-man. He wasn't born of flesh. He was born of spirit. The virgin birth, my friends, is incredibly important to our faith. To deny a virgin birth means that you deny a perfect God-man in Jesus who was sinless and was perfect. Why? Because you cannot be born of natural flesh and ever be without sin. And get this, you cannot be with sin and be a great sacrifice on behalf of the people. A sin-filled sacrifice always brings the wrath of God. But a perfect sacrifice, blameless and pure and without spot, what brings the love of God and the forgiveness of God? Jesus is all of those things. And because of that, look at verse 4. He has become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You, you may wonder, well, why would I have that, that debate? Or why would I even wonder that? I always believed that Jesus was higher than the angels. Well, the Jews struggled with that. The Jews struggled with Jesus. They, they struggled with his words. They struggled with his actions. Don't get me wrong. They marveled at his miracles, but they struggled when he said, Hey, what's more spectacular? That a man who was a paralytic take up his mat and go home? Or, or I would say his sins are forgiven. Ooh, who are you to say that their sins are forgiven? How do you have that power? And Jesus says, hey, sir, take up your mat and go home. 
They struggled with him. They, they believed that he was a blasphemer. Why? Because they could not wrap their head around God manifesting himself in man. Matter of fact, the Greeks, if they could escape the body, they wanted to. The Greeks believed that everything flesh and bone was, was unimportant and ultimately corrupted. And because it was corrupted, they wanted to get higher thought or a gnosis. And their, their thought was, in a sense, to escape the body. If they could ever escape the body, then they would be well pleased. But get this, that's not the picture of Christianity at all. God doesn't want you to escape your body. He doesn't want you to play with Ouija boards and ultimately come to his higher gnosis or thought. What he wants to do is take your broken body and repair it. Yeah, he wants to recreate it. And I'm not talking about by his stripes you are healed in the sense that physically. If you have posted that on Facebook or you have friends that do, by his stripes you are healed, it is not speaking of physical healing. What it is talking about is a corrupted heart that was sick, sin wrought by your stripes. He, he has healed you. God has not promised us in any shape or form an easy life. Matter of fact, we know that the Christian life, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow Jesus means a life oftentimes of toil and labor and pain. And God's never designed us for a life of comfort. Why? Because in the afterlife, there's comfort and joy and peace. And we know that all things that we have now known and experienced will one day fade away. But we're not there yet. And so what are we to do? We're to live well, to love well, knowing that the one we serve is higher than even the angels. But the Jews thought, I don't know that Jesus could be higher than the angels. Now, they had no problem with God being higher than the angels. They actually had no problem with Moses, the prophet, being higher than the angels. But this man, Jesus, I don't know. And the writer of Hebrews, although he's unnamed and we don't know him, he says, you need to know that the name that he has inherited, the name above all names, as we see in Philippians, the name that, what, what, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before heaven and earth, his name is Jesus. He's the one that's more excellent than even the angelic realm. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is the first and the last. Hebrews, the first and the last. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. He is the firstborn of creation. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. He's the light of men. He's our creator. He's our life sustainer. He is the creator. And the creator always trumps the creation. Did you get that? The creator always trumps the creation. He trumps us. He trumps Satan and his adversaries, he traps all the angelic realm because everything that I've just mentioned to you was created at one point in time. Jesus was never created. He has always been and always will be. He's the first and the last. God oftentimes is hard to wrap our mind around. And then here's why, because you and I now know space and time. But I need you to understand that the only reason that you know space and time is because one day God said, let there be light. And he created space and time. And so isn't it incredible how oftentimes the creation tries to know the creator and we boil it all down to this one moment in time where God entered into space and time and we can't wrap our heads around him because he's too great. We're too finite for the infinite and we wonder how in the world could all of this come to be? And I'll tell you, it happened because there's a divine being who has always been and always will be that decided to have a relationship with you and me. And he entered into this world with us. 
And then the writer of Hebrews makes the case. He says, here it is. He's the image of the invisible. He is the creator of all things. He provides the purification of your sins. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's higher than the angels. And then he just begins to pull out, get this, Old Testament words. Words from David, a king that they looked up to. Words from the prophets. And all this writer wants to do in the following verses is establish who Jesus is and how he's higher than the angels. And so look at the questions that this writer of Hebrews poses to all of these Jews that are Hesed or Hasidic loyal Jews. It means they, they loved Yahweh, but they didn't like the idea of Jesus. You know what I mean? They loved the Old Testament God, but they didn't like the idea of a Messiah in the New Testament called Jesus. He didn't quite fit the picture. He wasn't what they were expecting. And so the writer of Hebrews says, well, here's why you should look to him. He says, for which... Of the angels, did God ever say, you're my son, and today I've begotten you? Because the angels can't claim that they're the son of God. If you look at an angelic being, you, see, you can look at them and you can see that they're, they, they're the handiwork of God, but they're not the ultimate handiwork of God. The ultimate handiwork of God is not only his son, but also those who are sons or daughters who have been created in his image. Who is that? You and me. He goes, or again, has, has anyone ever said to the angel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? And then he says in verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He says, what's the role of the angel? The role of the angel is to worship God, and then he continues on. He says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne of God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here's what it says. It says, you need to be clear. Angels are something you and I should never long to be. Why? Because the son, Jesus, is the Messiah of God. And what? Angels are the ministers of God. On his behalf. See, we're not just the ministers of God, we are the sons and daughters of God. That means that upon our death, we don't desire to become angels that fly high. Why? Because angels long to understand the grace that has been bestowed upon you in Jesus. Because the last time I checked that of the multitude of fallen angels that fell with Lucifer, as we know him as Diabolos, the accuser, Satan, they never got a redemptive chance. They never got a chance to enter back into a picture and a narrative of salvation where the fallen, in terms of the angelic realm, got to be back in the heavenly place. No, they didn't get that. But you and I, we were created for God as the vice regents, the the vice presidents, in a sense, to look over all of creation, we fail, and God says, I have a plan to bring them back. He says, to which of the angels could say that? They can't. You understand? Angels are ministers of God on our behalf. Jesus is the Messiah of God. And then he looks at verse nine, and he says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The idea here is this. If Jesus is created, then he can't be your savior. 
He goes, he is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. He's the one that you and I should stand on. The handiwork of his hands are what you and I see. It's the heavens and the earth. You get the picture here in Hebrews 1? If I were to sum it up in three words, you need to know it's Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. You mean he's greater than the angels? Yes, he's greater. You mean that he's greater than Satan and his adversaries? Yes, Jesus is greater. You mean Jesus is greater than us? Jesus is greater. You mean Jesus is greater than science? Jesus is greater. Do you understand the picture? He is who we should look to. Why? Here's the question, why? Because even though he created all things, heaven, earth, or all products of his hands, Look what verse 11 says. It says, they will one day perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. It gives a picture of Revelation 5, the title deeds of the earth. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. What does this mean? It means that one day everything you and I now know will burn up and perish. Everything. You mean our houses? Yeah. Our cars? Yes. You mean your job? Yes. You mean that promotion I'm looking for? Yes. All the things that we spend so much time on here will one day fail. But what the scripture is saying is that there's one thing that will not fade. There is one thing that will not fail. That everything else in the world will fade like a garment. It'll be torn up and it'll dissolve. It'll be burned up in the fire. He says there's one thing that won't and that is you. When? When you're preserved through Jesus. When you're preserved through Jesus. And so he says, well, Lord, you are the same and your years will have no end. Do you understand this? He has no end date. If, if, you, go and you, if you go to a grave that assumes that maybe it's Jesus, you can't find him, right? He has, he has no epitaph. He has no marker. You're not going to go and find anywhere where Jesus is laying. Why? Because he is the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn among the dead. And yet he is raised to walk in newness of life. Why? Because he is the supreme being. He died simply to make all things right in our lives. Yes? And so that brings up verse 13. And to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? See, the, the angels don't get to sit at the right hand of God, do they? They get to worship God around his throne. But he says, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has crushed the enemy with his heel. He has crushed the enemy with his feet. He has stomped Satan out. The adversary has no plans that could what, be brought against you. Why? Because he will flee from you. And though we see 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Why? Because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Christ, as a new creation, walking in him, he has no power. Why? Because he's already triumphed over him through his heel. He is a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? He goes, do you understand what an angel is? An angel is someone who ministers to God on behalf of his people. Jesus is the Messiah of God. So let me just sum it all up, okay? I'm gonna sum it up in two ways. Here's what you need to know. The Jewish people of which this writer in Hebrews is writing to, there were two things that were true. One, they had no problem believing in a holy God 
and the way that he had what? Revealed himself in the past. They had no problem with dreams and visions. They had no problem with the handiwork of God's hands. They had no problem with the heavens and the earth. They had no problem with the prophets. Although they didn't heed their instruction, they believed that that was the way that God spoke. But when it came to Jesus, the Jews struggled mightily. Understand? When it came to Jesus, the Jews struggled mightily. Now, let me ask you this question. How are you and I like the Jews? Everything in our American statistics would suggest that you and I resemble the Jews in more ways than you and I know. 80% of our culture, uh, what? They claim to believe in God. They, in a sense, would say, I have no problem with a supernatural higher power. But they struggle mightily on Jesus. And you go, well, what do you mean? Well, in John chapter 2, Jesus says, put your belief in me and what? Your belief in God. But what he's saying is, put your trust in God, put it also in me. He's saying, don't merely believe that there's a God. Why? Because I don't want you to have the, the demon faith. James 2 says, even the demons believe in God, yet they shudder. And the only difference between you and some of the demons is that the demons actually shudder at the name of Jesus. But there are people day in and day out, weekend after weekend, who they come even into our place. And you go, well, I have no problem belie believing in God. I have no problem believing that. Well, even the demons believe there's a God. So does that mean they have salvation through Jesus? The answer is no. They don't have salvation through Jesus. Why? Because they've never put their trust in him. And there's a difference between believing there's a God and putting your trust in Jesus. Back in, in the old days when they were building temples or buildings in the Old Testament, they would take stone after stone and they would chisel and chisel and chisel. And what takes us four to six months to maybe build a house or two or three years to build an incredible building, it could take them a, a decade or two to build what they were doing. What's interesting, though, is that there was always a stone that the builders rejected. And what they would do is, is they would make the capstone. They would make that final stone, which would go over the archway of whatever it was that they were building, the temple or a, a spectacular building. And they would make this capstone. And it would be that stone that you walked out under and you saw it. But they would form it, they would chisel it, and they would have it laying out in the pasture, so to say, until the end, where they would just take it and they would lift it up and they would put it out there. But what's crazy about making the capstone one of the first stones that they did is that it laid out in the field. And can you imagine that it's laying out in the field and literally years go by. And if you've ever been on a job site, they pick up some of the trash, but the grass grows. Everything gets tall unless you and I are taking care of it. What they would do is they would concentrate on the building. Everything else you could imagine is growing up. Well, here's the capstone in the middle of this field. And people were walking along and then all of a sudden, they trip on the capstone. And then can you imagine when you trip on something? What do you do? What, what in the world? Hey, why are y'all so lazy over here? Pick up your stone. Can you imagine all the things that you say when you stumble on something? Well, Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, Chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see what it says? 
So the honor is for who believe, but those for who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What I'm saying is this, there are many people every single week that we approach church with a demonic-like faith. We have no problem believing in a God of the Old Testament, a supernatural higher power, but we stumble mightily on Jesus. You mean to tell me that I have to put my belief in him to be saved? Well, I don't know about Jesus. I mean, that doesn't really make sense to me. You, born of a virgin? Like you really believe that he was resurrected? Like you really believe that this guy was perfect in every way? Well, that's what the scripture says. And every single day there are people, even in our churches, who we, we ask these questions and we wonder, could Jesus be who he says he is? And I just have to ask you this. What aspect of Jesus are you stumbling on? Because you may believe every word he said, you may believe every miracle that he did, but the one thing you stumble on is to obey his word and to heed his instructions. And you need to be very clear that if there's any part of Jesus that you're stumbling on, you may believe his miracles, you may believe his death, his life, his resurrection, but you may go, I just don't really know that we should assemble together all the time. I don't know that there should be consistency. What Jesus says, don't forsake the assembling of the saints. I don't know that I should really, I don't know that I really should do this whole journey group deal. Well, you can heed the words of the scripture if you'd like, but everything suggests in New Testament church is that what? They gave to each other as they had need, that they devoted themselves to the scriptures, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to all those things. Proverbs 27, 17, which we all love. As what? Iron sharpens iron, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. What, do you understand what I'm saying? See, we love the idea of a God who loves us, but we don't necessarily love the idea of obeying everything in scripture that Jesus commanded us to do. And so I got to ask you this question. If, if you haven't heard anything else I said, that's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to give you this one challenge. If you like you zoned out, you're like, I don't really get this stuff. I, it's a little too much. I mean, you're talking about Jesus and being a creator and I mean, you're talking about angels and all this stuff, and I don't really get all of it. Well, let me just ask you this. I'll leave it to you in this. And, and on Tuesday, the takeaway, when somebody goes, hey, you went to church this weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? I don't know. There's some, something about angels. Angel. I don't know. I don't get it. I think we're going to be angels. No. no. <laughs> ask yourself this, and may this be the thing that you talk about with your coworkers. Are you stumbling on Jesus or are you standing on Jesus? Are you stumbling on Jesus or are you sta standing on Jesus? Matthew 7 says that all of us can know that one day the waters are going to rise, that the winds are going to blow, and that the rain is going to fall. Those who have built their house on the sinking sand will be washed away. But those who have been built on the solid rock, the chief cornerstone, they'll stand. And so I got to ask you, will you stand or will you stumble? Are you stumbling on Jesus or are you standing on Jesus? May I pray for you, church? God, I pray that you would help us to know that you are the light of our life. That the darkness has never overcome you. That you are the creator, that you are the life sustainer. I pray that we would know that by you, all things are not only created, but held together. And though we struggle with some of the Bible and some of its teaching, 
though we struggle with different elements in our own life and how we apply it, I pray we would answer this question. Lord, are we stumble on you or are we supported by you? Are we allowing you to lift us up? Are we being known by you? And more importantly, are we knowing you? God, help us in this quest and this search. Because apparently the writer of Hebrews believes that you are greater than everything we see and know, visible and invisible. That we're not to have just a demonic-like faith, simply believe that Jesus existed, believe that he was a good teacher. But Father, we need to trust that he was the Son of God, perfect in every way, and he came to reconcile our hearts that were broken and sin-filled and give them new life. So Lord, help us to stand on you. In Jesus' name, amen.